0: Hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of The Bible Unmuted. My name is Matt Halstead, and it's a pleasure to be with you once again this week. Well, today we have a great episode lined up because we have a special guest. In this conversation, I chat with Steve Walton, a senior research fellow at Trinity College Bristol. Steve is the author of Reading Acts Theologically, which was published by TT Clark in the Library of New Testament Studies series. He's currently working on an Acts commentary, which will be published as part of the Word Biblical Commentary set. Now, Steve's commentary comes in three volumes, the first of which will be out in October of 2024, so mark your calendars, you'll definitely want to pick this up. Steve and I discuss a range of topics in this discussion, including the way Luke depicts early Christian ecclesiology and missions, visions and divine revelation, the Roman Empire, and what Luke can teach us about Paul. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, we are here with Steve Walton to talk about the wonderful book of Acts. Steve, thanks so much for being here today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Yeah. So you and I, in some ways, I guess kind of go back a ways because when I was doing my PhD, um, you were you served, I can't remember, I think on one of the committees when I was upgrading or transferring from MTH or something like that. that was, that's been a long time ago, but I don't know if you remember that. Yes.
1: <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah and I was director of research so I was overseeing a whole PhD program at London School of Theology in those days
0: yeah yeah man that's been a while ago and um I can't I can't remember when that was you know when I was working on my PhD I look back and that was just such a blur because <laughs> I don't think I slept much <laughs> but um yeah and then we've seen each other I think oh, we were just talking about this um probably most recently at the Tyndale conference I think it was when, when yeah. I was in Cambridge. Um, 20 to 21. Yeah. I don't remember but yeah, anyway
1: that sounds right yeah
0: yeah so hey let's just start yeah. off uh, tell us a little bit about yourself um education background all, all that stuff
1: sure um my my present job is I'm senior research fellow in New Testament at Trinity College Bristol which is an Anglican theological college um, and I work mainly with the doctoral students um, in in the program um, so that that means I'm not actually physically at Trinity very much. Um, I, um, I'm married to Ali, who is a pastor in the Church of England, and um, we have a dog called Flora, who is a border terrier and keeps us entertained. Um, but I, I did my theology at Cambridge when I was training to be ordained in the Church of England, and then later did a PhD at Sheffield um, with Andrew Lincoln and then Lovedale Alexander. Um, as my supervisors, Um, and I've taught at um, St. John's College, Nottingham, London School of Theology, St. Mary's University, Twickenham, and now Trinity, and and done bits of part-time teaching elsewhere too.
0: Fabulous. Yeah, that's great. Um, So uh, you're working currently on the Word Biblical Commentary volume uh, on Acts. And actually, uh, it's three volumes, right?
1: Yes, yes, you'll see the first volume this October on acts one to nine. Um, it ended up being rather longer than I'd hoped it would. So um, it's gonna be three volumes rather than two. Yeah. And
0: um, how many words does that come out to you? Do you, do you have a ballpark?
1: Like, um, to each volume is about 300,000. Oh, so okay. slight, slightly under a million words in total.
0: Goodness, that's a lot. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that. That, And I might pick your brain a little bit about your writing habits and stuff at the end. But like, what's the experience been just in writing this commentary? And I love the And everybody loves the word biblical commentary series. It's just fabulous. And so what was it like? Or what is it like? Wading through Acts in such meticulous detail, and then putting it on paper? How was that experience been like?
1: generally very very exciting i i don't think there's a day when i sit down to write when i don't think gosh this is a privilege to do this yeah um my friend john goldingay once said to me that he writes commentaries for himself um and if they're useful to other people that's nice and i i do understand that um because i my own understanding of the book has grown and grown and grown Mm. as I've worked on it and that's been exciting but I try never to lose sight of the fact that I'm I'm doing this for the church and the academy and trying to feed both sets of people in the work I'm doing so the explanation section which is the last section of each um, paragraph of Acts is I'm writing with my wife in mind as a picture and I want I, when I talk to students and to ministers who use the series I say to them the first place to go on a passage is the explanation section because that's when you get the big picture of what's going on in the passage and then you can go back and look into the detail but otherwise there's real danger you'll drown in the detail in the earlier part so I writing it has been has been an exciting experience um just because i've grown and learned from it
2: Mm
0: -hmm. what sorts of things have been surprising in your research has there been anything that you've had to change your
2: mind on Uh, anything that you didn't expect
1: i um there were things that took me by surprise um what was the the pervasiveness of um Isaiah 49, 6. Um, it, it gets used, as you'll know, in Luke's gospel, in Simeon's hymn, that as Anglicans know as the Dimittis, where he, he talks about um, light to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel, as those two things that are going on and that's a clear echo of isaiah 49 6. you get the phrase the end of the earth in acts one eight, which is straight out of isaiah 49 6 and then you get the direct quote of isaiah 49 6 in acts thirteen forty seven in pisidian antioch when paul and barnabas use it to explain why they're turning to gentiles and Isaiah 49.6 is part of one of the servant songs of Isaiah, which is painting a picture of what Israel's role is meant to be as God's servant. And it gets picked, the servant songs, of course, get picked up lots in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is identified as the servant. But in Acts, it's the, the, the church corporately that's there to act as the servant of God. And i i i don't think I, I don't think i'd ever put those three uses of Isaiah forty nine six together, and realized how significant they are for understanding the church. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Because in the servant songs, the servant is clearly Israel, but you also get this idea in Isaiah that the servant will rescue Israel, and then it's a pretty hmm. easy. Jump to uh, apply that to the Messiah, Philippians 2, and in, in, in the writings of Paul. Um, and then, so I guess it would make sense that the servant would take on a corporate aspect yet again in the New Testament with the people of God, with the church, mm. given our mm. union with Christ and that sort of thing, too. So that's the sort of thing you're talking about there, I yes. guess. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. That's, very much so. Yeah.
0: yeah. 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 No, that's fascinating. So, um, Let's talk about the church. I mean, when I think of the book of Acts, I typically think of two things. I think of uh, the growth of the church, which that, that makes sense. And then I think of miracles, <laughs> For, you know, the, the Holy Spirit and something like that. Um, and uh, or supernatural stuff, I guess you could say. But um, and so I I'm, I'm, I don't know. I guess these days I'm super interested in ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think it's just because of my own journey. I, I, I don't know if we've talked since I've mentioned this or since this has happened, but I used to be a Baptist minister, but I'm now Anglican.
2: <laughs> so All right. okay. I, I,
0: I've jumped over to where you are. And um, so I guess just as my family and I began thinking about ecclesiology, like, you know, and thinking about certain things and everything. So it's just been on my mind. So I'd love mm. to pick I'd love to pick your brain on 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 ecclesiology and and even like church planting stuff. As well, yeah. but um, I'm curious, can you identify or are there any identifiable common um, practices for like church planting, evangelism in the book of Acts? Um, I don't know. That's a very broad question. I don't know if it mm. makes a whole lot yeah. of sense, but
1: yeah, yeah. I, th- I think a key thing to know is that God has a church rather than the church has God.
2: Uh, Okay, that's good. In
1: the book of Acts. In other words, the book of Acts is the story of what God is doing, how God is acting, and then how the church catches up with him. Um, Mm. Think, for instance, of the Cornelius story in Acts chapter 10, where God takes the initiative with both Cornelius and Peter. So an angel appears to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, while he's praying. And then Peter has this weird vision of the sheep with the animals let down from the sky three times. And at the point Peter's puzzling over it, Cornelius's messengers arrive and the spirit says to him, there are these guys knocking at the door, go talk to them. And Peter, against all his Jewish instincts, welcomes these Gentiles into his home. Mm. Goes to this Jewish, this um, Roman home um, where Cornelius is, and then the penny drops, as we say in England. Um, and he says, "Oh yeah, I realise now that God doesn't differentiate."
2: Mm.
1: So it I, without what you might call the divine appointments. Organised by by God. I I can't imagine that Peter would have gone looking for Cornelius, mm-hmm. and yet that's a key step towards the Gentile mission. Mm-hmm. So that um the, the missiologists talk about missio dei, the mission of God, and I think Acts fits really well with that. That God is at the centre of what's going on. So it's not that. Um, the church has a brilliant strategic plan. Hmm. That isn't true at <laughs> all, really. It's that God acts and God thrusts the church out. So the church is an instrument of God's mission. Um, David, the South African missiologist David Bosch puts it this way. He says, there is church because there is mission, not vice versa. Oh, so good. the mission creates the church. The mission's driven by God. And that that goes on all over the book of Acts. But I think the Cornelius story is a, a particularly remarkable example of that. Mm-hmm. So um, remarkably, in 16, 16 to 12 you've got this strange story where they're traveling and wandering across what we now know as Turkey. And the spirit says, you can't go there. You can't go there. And and they end up at Alexandria Troas on the west coast of of Turkey, scratching their heads Um, and just not sure what God's doing. And then Paul has this night vision of the man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Um, the the commentators get very excited about how paul knows it's a man from macedonia i'd have thought that he the fact he was saying come over to macedonia is a clue myself um so um and and that then takes them across the aegean to neapolis the port of philippi and then philippi itself where they end up in jail Hmm. so they this is this is one of the very very few cases that there's absolutely specific divine guidance to a place and yet they end up in the some of the deepest trouble that they end up anywhere in acts which is really striking um and maybe it had to be that way to get them to the right place at the right time but then in philippi um that when they're there they then take responsibility they go find a prayer by the river and god opens lydia's heart they um and there's a new believing community established in lydia's home as a result of them being willing to go looking but it needed god's action with lydia to open her heart to to respond to the gospel so the believers don't make things happen. They just have to be in the place where God wants them to be, and God makes things happen. And there's really quite limited planning and strategy going on um, because the believers are seeking to follow God's lead. And and sometimes they do this kicking and screaming. When Peter gets back from being with Cornelius and his household, Mm -hmm. the Jewish believers in, in Jerusalem are grumpy about it and say, what were you doing eating with these, these dreadful Gentiles? And Peter then tells them the story of what God has done. And they say, oh, my goodness, God has granted even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. That "kai even, is really striking um, because they're evidently surprised, but they can't gainsay what God has done. So that, that now I'm not saying there's no strategy of planning. Paul's, Paul appears to travel along major Roman roads, goes to major cities and towns, he evangelizes there and and there are three places he spends substantial periods. There's Syrian Antioch in 1126 where he spends over a year. there's Corinth in chapter 18 where he spends over 18 months. And then there's Ephesus in chapter 19, where he spends over two years. In in 1910, Luke observes that the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, that's understandable exaggeration, I think. But it, it makes sense that people came into Ephesus, which was the market town, traded, bought stuff, sold stuff, came across this guy, Paul, who was in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and came to faith um tychicus seems to have been a somebody from colossi and seems to have gone back and planted the church in Colossae himself so the province hears i'm not sure paul left ephesus himself but people who came to ephesus became church planters through through Paul's ministry sorry it's not it, because it's Epaphras I beg his pardon Who's um, mentioned in Colossians 1 and Colossians 4 um now that's interesting because modern research suggests that most Christians are the most effective as witnesses for their faith in their first two years so I think it's entirely plausible that someone like Epaphras could wander back home, full of enthusiasm for his faith in Jesus, and others come to faith too. Mm. So that um, I th- I think that guards us against overactivism, the assumption that it all depends on us. Um, it's 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 important that we use our minds and our gifts. Our resources wisely and sensibly, but equally, it's important that we're open to God doing something that might be surprising. Um, Mm. sometimes the people who come to faith are not the people you would expect to come to faith, um, and that's that's wonderful, but equally, um, you don't go the opposite direction and, um, and, and sit back and say, well, it's all up to God, so let's see what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you engage with people. If the early Christians had believed that and just sat back, the gospel would have gone nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a responsibility. Um, it, it's beautifully put in First Corinthians 3.6, where the verb tenses are really striking. I planted Apollos water and God gave, God gave the growth. It's the usual translation. I planted an Apollos watered both aorists. God gave the growth is an imperfect. The, the imperfect, the contrast of the two tensors, where the imperfect portrays an ongoing process in the past, is really striking. So you've got two, Apollos dropping in, Paul dropping in, into God's purposes. But actually all the way through, it's God who's at work. And I think I think that's the kind of picture you got in Acts. So so the believers on, um, Henshin has a phrase. He says they're like twitching puppets, and and I think he's wrong because there is a responsibility for witness and proclamation. There is a responsibility for speaking and living the gospel in public. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a responsibility for for working together, um, and and working in teams. Um, and there's a responsibility as Peter does, for responding when God prompts you mm-hmm. to to go somewhere you really hadn't expected to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's a combination of divine activity and human um, human response, mm-hmm. which leads to um, the gospel spreading.
2: Yeah, I yeah,
0: that's a, that's a wonderful a wonderful overview there. I and i think that it's really interesting how they were the early christians were moved by revelation like a vision of mm. something to that effect and that, that just fascinates me this the supernatural elements here and and i think when people read acts they they definitely get the impression that i mean i'm assuming here but i get the impression i should say that there's it, there appears to not be a whole lot of like ecclesiastical structure i mean you have the jerusalem council you know, you've got some of that, right? But but over time, like fast forward a hundred years, you have a much more well-defined structure. Uh, mm-hmm. I I'm I'm thinking of like an early father like Ignatius is talking about a threefold ministry now. You know, you have a bishop, mm-hmm. you have priests or presbyters, and then you have deacons. Mm-hmm. And and so what ends up happening, and I think in the modern church, and I've I've seen this a lot, is there's this impression that the more structure you have, then the less spirit you can have moved. And the more spirit you have moved, the less structure you need. How do, mm. how do we in today's church, if you want to bridge to the modern world here for a moment, like, how do we make sense of this? Should we go back to the primitive church and just say, ah, we don't need structure at all, you know, or is there a way to have structure and still hear the voice of God and be surprised mm. yet again?
1: I've just read a really interesting book by Nadia Williams. Um called Cultural Christians in the first century. Um, it's just come out from Zondervan. and it's extremely good. Um, and what she's doing as a, as a classical scholar, um, she's a Roman historian by trade, is looking at the cultural sins that early Christians committed and or were in danger of committing. And she she notices particularly the way that um, there's the danger that they just take over. Social structures of the Roman Empire and baptize them um, and start looking like that so I mean if you go to a lot of Anglican churches today that have the priest wearing a chasuble and and all sorts of things like that they 're just dressing up as a Roman gentleman of the first century um, so so that's and that is a bit odd because it's not um It's not contextualising the practice of the church to the culture it's in. And Paul and others show themselves to be doing that. Um, And if, if you look at the difference between the way Paul speaks in the synagogue in Antioch in Acts 13, it's very, very different from the way he speaks to the Areopagus, the council in Athens in chapter 17. Hmm. And he's he's the the thrust of what he's saying, the direction of where he goes, and finishing up with Jesus ra- raised from the dead and judge, he ends up in the same place. But the route by which he gets there is very different. It's, it seems to me that's pointing us towards um there being a core to what it means to be the church that's that doesn't change. But a lot of flexibility about how that's expressed in different cultures mm. um, so I, I I'm not sure there's a sort of one size fits all um, way of being church that's appropriate because the way you do it in different settings would be different mm. um, the way you'd you, the way you'd be Christian in um, a culture like Iran would be very different to the way you do it in the West, for instance. So I I, I think it's identifying how you carry those things out. Now, that said, I think there are some principles about leadership. You've got a, a, a wider-than-local form of leadership with Paul and then his delegates like Timothy and Titus. Um, And you've you've also got localised leadership. Acts 14.23 has them appointing elders in the communities in South Galatia. Um, People who probably have been Christians about six months at that point, which is really quite interesting. Um, And you have people appointed to specific tasks like the seven are given the job of looking after the widows in acts 6 mm-hmm. um, you get short-term roles that people have um, or you get somebody like Paul who is uh, a committed lifetime traveling missionary mm-hmm. so so there's there's a huge flexibility I think but there are there are things that are there and and I I've i'm 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 a cradle anglican and um but one of the reasons i've stayed anglican most of my life has been um because i think the way that the church of england um incarnates those principles looks a reasonably sensible way to do it and i think one of the things that's been happening in england certainly in recent years is that we've caught on that church planting is still necessary um, the church we belong to in Loughborough in the East Midlands is in a town that's grown from 15,000 to 60,000 in 20 years. So there are huge unchurched areas. So we, we came here because Ali, my wife, was hired to pastor the main congregations to free up Michael, our rector, and others to plant churches in these new areas. So we've got one planted. Um, another one on a, the go, and I hope for a third one um, in, in the next year or two. So, so that that and that seems to me to be using the flexibility that AX encourages us to have, and not being tied down to say, "Oh, well, we've always done it this way." Actually, we've probably only done it this way for fifty years.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, is there any, any indication in Acts that the, the movements of the Spirit, whether that's visions, revelations, or whatever, what we might call charismatic events, is there any indication that, that that's normative you know, for us today, that we should be open to those sorts of things? Because, I mean, I don't know what the debate is in the UK these days. In, in sort of just the circles that I grew up in, there was always this big debate about, you know the charismatic gifts and maybe that's yeah. just because I was largely in well I, I, growing up I was kind of in a just in all kinds of different contexts growing up but some non-denominational and then eventually Baptist and yeah. so th- th- some for some those were just debates here but is there you know as a scholar you know looking at acts how would you know how would you answer that question to a church member saying hey are these still for today should I if I hear a voice, you know, or is it even possible to hear God's voice in that sense? Hey friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of the Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support, too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun biblical theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support.
1: Yes, I'd say two things. One is that I think Acts does point towards um, staying open to God doing these sorts of things. Um, Otherwise god isn't god Mm. um so so there being a real openness to things like that happen and at a a few times in my life i've seen things like that remarkable things like that happen um they're not happening to me every five minutes right and i'm not sure they were happening every five minutes in the early church either Mm. that and and luke is really interestingly selective Um, If you look at Acts 13 and 14, which is where they plant the churches in South Galatia, there's no mention of signs and wonders or, or that sort of language. And yet we know from Galatians 3 that that stuff did happen when the church was planted there. In Acts 18, in Corinth, again, there's no indication of signs and wonders and stuff. And yet the Corinthian letters show us that was a feature of the planting of those churches and and their ongoing life. Mm-hmm. So Luke is obviously being selective in what he says. And it would be, a, I, th- I think, with the evidence of Galatians and the Corinthian letters, it would be a mistake to interpret um, silence as meaning, no, it didn't happen. Um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Um, whereas... Obviously, elsewhere in Acts, you get remarkable things going on, like um, in Philippi in Acts 16, where you get a sequence of remarkable things. There's the... Um, Paul Paul casts a spirit out of this girl who prophesies. He and Barnabas... He and Silas end up in jail, but there's an earthquake that sets them free, and their jailer becomes a Christian. Um, mm-hmm. And and then they are allowed to go, but only after Paul has insisted on an apology because they have beaten Roman citizens without permission. So so there's that kind of remarkable sequence of things goes on. And that seems to be the case. Um, Church history suggests that those sorts of remarkable things are particularly prevalent when church has been planted in a new area. Um, and I, 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 I enjoyed reading Craig Keener's little Miracles Today book Mm. in which he has meticulously documented evidence of, um, variations in God's usual way of working in healing or deliverance or things like that. Um, and um, Craig being the scholar he is, they are meticulously documented, um, so that's my second thing is that the the evidence of the modern church seems to be these things haven't gone away, mm. but they do still happen yeah,
0: no that's good I, I I agree with that yeah that that would be my view as well um so before I have some Paul questions, but before we get into, no. into that, um I want to ask you a little bit about empire I mean I, I think we, you mentioned Rome a moment ago um so the New Testament and empire studies it's continues to be a a point of discussion
1: um Mm.
0: how might luke axe contribute to that discussion what does it have to say
1: yeah i i I wrote an essay about this gosh 25 years ago and it's probably the piece i've written that's been most cited um and, and what i do is map different ways that people have talked about this um but to, to cut to the chase, and, and actually, I
0: think, if I if I may interrupt real quick, just for those listeners who may not be familiar with empire studies and stuff, so could you kind of give us a b- very brief kind of overview of what what's being sure? Given?
1: Okay, yep. there was a school of thought at one time that Acts was written as Paul's defense brief for his trial, so that it's defending the Christian church to the Roman authorities. Um, The trouble is there's so much that's irrelevant to that that it's really hard to make it fit. Hmm. Another possibility flipping that the other way was that it was a defence of the Roman Empire to the church, showing that the Roman Empire was happy with the church. Gallio in Corinth um, says there's no case to answer. Um, The the trials later on in Acts, in twenty. 22, 26, um, there's, Paul could have been let free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So the, the that that's, that's there. But Paul gets held in prison for two years for no reason. So the picture of the empire isn't all a nice picture. Um, another possibility is that Paul is against the uh, luke is against the empire and critiquing it and and you can see that in some of the bad things about the empire that come out that um paul and barnabas get beaten um the city authorities in place after place go against them um, but again it's not one side that picture so th- those are the kind of major threads that have been running around mm. um I, I'm more inclined to think it's it's a more nuanced picture that Luke's giving you pictures of what it looks like when the empire is at its best. Gallio in Acts 18 is an example of that, where he 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 deals with the case and finds um finds that Paul is innocent of the charges against him. And this is just an, an intra-Jewish argument, which gives The believers, the protection of the the Roman law, because Jews have a freedom in Corinth to worship and to assemble and and so on. But when the empire misbehaves, Paul is quite prepared to confront them. um, As he does with Festus, Um, Festus is hoping to get a bribe. Um, Paul goes and talks to him about righteousness, self-control and all the things that he's not good at, (laughs) but wants him to become a believer. Um, So Paul's prepared to confront him. And in his particular case, um, because he's um, got rid of his wife and married somebody else, then there's every reason that he might not like what Paul is saying to him. So Paul's prepared to do that sort of thing and to challenge. And, and that's true, of course, back in Jerusalem. Well, it's not the Roman Empire there, it's the um it's the Jerusalem Council, the Sanhedrin. Mm-hmm. And in chapter five, Peter says to them plainly, you guys killed Jesus. Um, and God raised him from the dead. But but he places the responsibility squarely on them. Because not, not too long before that was what they'd done. They they tried Jesus at night, taken him to Pilate and had him had him crucified. So the the picture of the church's engagement with empire is a mixed picture. Mm. It, it's, uh, and, and from it, Christians' reading acts could say, okay, so I I know how to testify when things are bad and I know how to testify when things are good. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's a, a, a much more mixed picture. I think the other ways of thinking about it tend to select one strand of evidence Mm -hmm. and leave the others out.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Um, most of my time has been spent in Paul. So, um, mm-hmm. it's always fun to be able to, to chat with scholars in the gospels and acts and all that kind of stuff. Um, cause I learned so much because <laughs> I, I probably, I probably need to read more about Jesus in the gospels than, than I, than I, than I do. Um, but, um, but if we could switch gears just a little bit to mm. Paul specifically, however, I, I'm curious, what can Luke teach us about Paul? Like what can, um, what, what can Acts specifically teach us about Paul? And I, I, I have a question about the way that Luke records in different sections of Acts, Paul's conversion, um, mm. if we call it a conversion. But anyway, yeah, just broadly <coughs> speaking, what, you know, how does Acts help for the study of Paul?
1: There, there, there's information in Acts about Paul that we don't have from his letters. Um, we, um, we, we learned from Acts that he was educated under Gamaliel for instance, and um, Paul himself doesn't mention that. He does mention that he's a Pharisee um, in Philippians. Um, he um, In in both sources, we discover that he persecuted Christians. Galatians 1 talks about that, and of mm-hmm. course Acts 8 talks about him doing that um, before he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. Um, he... Um, he may have been um, on the supreme Sanhedrin. Um, he talks in Acts twenty six ten about casting his vote against the Christians, hmm. um, which which may put him there, um, and that would also mean he was married. And yeah, that's that would be yeah. and that would be a really interesting piece of background to the stuff in First Corinthians seven where he's talking about how you handle a situation. And he particularly talks about the situation of a believer whose spouse stay, will stay with them, even though they're not a believer, and a believer whose spouse leaves them because they're a believer. And I, I wonder if that's his experience coming through there. I wonder if his wife dumped him when he became a, became a follower of Jesus.
0: You know, I remember, I, I remember Tom Wright saying are being asked hey if there's one thing you could ask paul what would you ask him and he would sa- he said i would ask him what happened to your wife and I, I, that was that was a really good question i think and
1: yeah. it sounds like that's that's yeah.
0: something that that there's there's a something there
1: yeah yeah so i think i think you've got two portraits that are complementary um, and and it's not that paul's own letters are more objective because gosh this is paul himself and You only have to read Galatians, and and there's steam coming off the page um, as he's he's talking about his opponents. Mm. Um, So this is not kind of nice, objective, calm reflection. Um, It's a bit more like that in something like Philippians, which is is probably Paul's happiest letter. (laughs) Um, But in in the case of Luke, you're getting an outside view on him. Um so so you're getting a bit of a picture of what he's like um from somebody who I'm inclined to think was was a was someone who traveled with him, at least for some of the time. Because I, I think the the we character that shows up in Acts 16 and onwards indicates the author's present at those events. Um and that that pro- therefore probably indicates that. For a lot of the second half of Acts, mm-hmm. it's Paul's own um, telling of the stories that mm-hmm. stand behind what Luke tells us. Mm-hmm.
0: So feel free to get in the, into the weeds if you want to, or keep it as general as you want to here. But I, I do have a question about um, the way Luke reports Paul's conversion, Again, yeah. using the word yeah. conversion here very loosely. But um, so so in acts 9 20 in chapter 22 26 they're different yeah you know there's different retellings um, some have noticed a slight contradiction a little mm-hmm. in in some of that how do you reconcile well first of all what you know maybe maybe share a little bit about what some of the differences are there cuz it's a yeah. group experience that paul has with other people yes. and you know he might hear one thing they don't hear anything and then mm-hmm. the story's kind of flipped in another section of acts and so yeah, how do you reconcile that? Is And what's Luke doing yeah. there?
1: Well, there's a strong common core to the three accounts. Um, Saul persecutes, follows Jesus. The high priest authorizes him to seek and arrest believers. He travels to Damascus. Close to Damascus, there's a bright light shines on him. He hears Jesus speak. Jesus tells Saul he's persecuting Jesus. Um, Saul gets instructions. He can't see, although that's not there in 26. Um, Ananias meets Saul after the Lord visits Ananias, again, absence in 26. Um, And Saul proclaims Jesus in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. Um, And those are common features across the the tellings. Um, However, there are also distinctive things in each of the three tellings. Um, In Acts 9... We hear the conversation between the Lord and Ananias, and we don't hear it in 22. Um, We hear in Acts 9 about a Jewish conspiracy to kill Saul, who then escapes through the wall. And the other two stories don't tell us that, although we get interesting corroboration in 2 Corinthians of of that. Um, the, um, The journey to Tarsus in acts nine th- acts 931 is distinctive of chapter 9 um in acts 22 the study under Gamaliel is is distinctive um paul makes a big deal in 2212 of the of ananias being a, jew, a devout jew um hmm. which makes sense because he's addressing a hostile crowd in the temple so he's going to want to do that there um, But in 22, the the encounter with Ananias is told from Paul's perspective, whereas in 9, Luke's telling us it actually from Ananias' perspective at that point. Mm. Um, In 26, Paul casting his vote against believers is there. um, And the call to mission among Gentiles happening during the Damascus Road experience is distinctive in twenty six. In chapter nine, um, it happens through Ananias. In chapter twenty two, Saul talks about a vision he has in the temple of the Lord, saying, "Go to the Gentiles." Um, now, um, the the Swiss scholar Daniel Marjorah looks at these and says, um, "The key thing to ask is about audience." In 9, we've got Luke as um, what we tend to call an omniscient narrator telling us the story. In 22, Paul is speaking to this rioting mob in the temple who just tried to kill him. And he's speaking in Aramaic to them. So he's stressing his loyalty to Judaism, um, the fact that the people around him who helped him um, were... And Ananias were were devoutly Jewish, and so on. In twenty six, he's in a Roman courtroom, so it's a different situation again. Mm. But he's talking to a context where he's got some Jewish, knowledgeable Jewish people in the room, mm-hmm. so he he draws out some of those features. So so the audience tends to tends to um, <laughs> that the selection of material tends tends to do that. Um, So Marjouin notices that you get amplifications. um, Paul's persecution of believers is described more and more severely as the three stories go on. Um, You get suppressions. Ananias is a really significant character in Nine, mentioned a little bit in 22 disappears entirely in 26 but that makes sense with the audiences he's dealing with Um, and you get an interpolation paul's call to mission among the gentiles is part of the damascus road experience in 26 it appears to happen later in chapter 9 when ananias tells him about it Um, and it appears to happen later when saul hears the call in the temple now that um that doesn't mean it, it it wasn't something that was part of all three occasions. It just means Axie's being selective
2: mm-hmm.
1: about the way it's done. Um so I I think Marchirat's way of looking at that is actually rather helpful mm-hmm. um in terms of, of making sense of it. But um but of course, I mean there are difficulties in putting um small details together. Mm-hmm. Um did Source Companions hear or see what was going on? Mm-hmm. Well, in one version of the story, it says um, they saw the light but they didn't hear anything. In other versions, it says, sorry, they saw the light but didn't hear the voice.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, in other versions, it says um, they heard an, a sound. But it's actually a different word from voice. Mm -hmm. so so it's as though they heard something Mm -hmm. but not the words that Saul himself was hearing as he was kneeling on the ground so it it, it's not tidy but then it's a bit like the resurrection accounts in the gospels Mm -hmm. they can be fitted together with care and patience um and if they all looked exactly the same that would be evidence that they it was just all made up really because Mm -hmm. It
0: would be a put-up job yeah yeah and and and, and the way i tend to see things is i have a high view of scripture but i don't necessarily think the what we might call untidiness is that problematic at all because it actually is these are people relaying experiences that they've had Mm. and and as you say if if they were all exactly the same one might say ah they planned this. This is a conspiracy. This is a classic resurrection discussion. People, when they talk about the resurrection, how the different viewpoints just come through, because they actually saw something, and, yeah. and you get the different perspectives and things like that.
1: Um, yeah. And, and yeah, when, you, when you look over at the letters, um, Sayun mm-hmm. Kim, in his doctoral work, showed the significance of the Damascus Road experience to, to yeah. Paul's theology of mission.
0: That's a great and,
1: book, by the way. What Was it called yes, The Origin it, of
0: origin of paul's gospel 1984 yeah. maybe or something or
1: yeah it went through it went through a second edition as well that's right and yeah, it, yeah i mean it's a remarkable piece of work yeah
0: it really um, is
1: yeah but it i think reading him helped me make connections mm. um like noticing that um in in acts in the acts stories you get paul seeing the lord um 22 14 says that God chose Saul to see the righteous one um Ananias speaks about Jesus who, who whom you saw on the road and in 1 Corinthians 9 1 I have seen the Lord mm. so and and it's not that um they're kind of pulls going out of his way to make a big deal of it but it just provides um tangential confirmation we might say Mm -hmm. of what's there in acts Mm -hmm. um so so it's when you put things together i think it makes sense i i i one of the things i did in the commentary was was when i wrote on acts nine i wrote an excursus on the conversion stories Um, and I do, I do think conversion is is an appropriate term, but I think calls equally appropriate.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: I, yeah. I don't think you have to choose between the two.
2: Yeah, that's fair. Um,
1: but but I wrote about the three acts accounts and the pool and the Pauline accounts.
0: Mm-hmm. Now the first Did volume. Go oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go
1: no, they're gone.
0: Oh, uh, your first volume is one to nine, right? So this will be yes, in the... It is. So the okay, yeah, so this so is it's coming... be in the okay. first
1: volume. Um, and I look at this a bit. In the, mm-hmm. I, I wrote the article on Paul in Acts in the new edition of the Dictionary Paul and Letters, and I, I I talk about it there as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Maybe. The, yeah. I think maybe I did read that article that you that you wrote. It's been a while since. Um. I, you know, as I old as older I get, the less I remember what I read, and so <laughs> I'm having to like I I have to carry a notebook around everywhere. You know. Um. But but you know that's really good. I'm I'm working on an article and I've kind of put it aside for a while to do another writing a few other writing things but but on on paul's uh conversion or call whatever you want to call it and so i'm i'll really look forward to to october when when your when the commentary comes out i can check that out that'd be mm. great that'd be great um mm. okay yeah so as so we wrap up here um just j- this is just a question I, i've i've grown accustomed to asking scholars and and just because i i'm trying to find my own Uh, sort of rhythm and writing um, and trying to, you know, so I'm very curious, always super curious in in other people's writing habits. Like, so what do you find helpful when you write? Like what time of day? How often do you write? Do you write in spurts or just, are you one of those who can write, sit down for 10 minutes and go do something else and come back or?
1: It depends a bit on what I'm doing. Um, But I try and spend mornings at my desk doing that sort of thing. Um, if I possibly can um, and occasionally evenings I'm not an afternoon person and um, I, I like to talk to my doctoral students in the afternoon because yeah. they keep me awake because it's kind of hard to fall asleep when you're talking to somebody
2: yeah. um,
1: <laughs> yeah. so um so I, th- I think it's partly about how my um, my my kind of biorhythms work yeah. and knowing when I'm on my best um, I think the other th- The other thing I do is I'm a planner. So I like to have a skeleton of what I'm going to do. And that then evolves as I read stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And the beauty of use, I I use the outlining feature in Microsoft Word quite a bit. And the beauty of that is you can move things around Mm -hmm. quite easily when you've got an idea. So if I'm writing an article, I think the article on Pauline Acts for the Dictionary of Paul and Letters, I did a draft and then threw it in the bin because I didn't think it was any good and, and then completely restructured. Same information, but completely reorganised it. Mm-hmm. And that's what produced the article that's, that's in the dictionary. Um, the, but I'm, I'm not a person who can just sit and write. I need to have thought what I'm going to write. Mm-hmm. And how I'm going to make my case
2: mm-hmm.
1: with the commentary. Of course, that's a bit different because um, the the text sets the agenda. Mm-hmm. So i've I, i've got to kind of think it through. And what I've done with with the commentary is um, I set out to do two volumes. So when I started Acts one to fourteen, I did the translation and notes for the whole of one to fourteen. And I've done something similar for 15 to 28 because I wanted to try and translate as consistently as possible. So I did that for a few weeks each. Um, and then I um and I made notes on things I wanted to talk about in the comments section and sometimes in the form structure and settings section as I went through. And then um I, with that, I then go back and work passage by passage, in engagement with the secondary literature. Mm-hmm. So again, I try and write myself an agenda of the things I think I need to talk about, having gathered a bibliography for that um, that section. But then I change my mind when I read other people because either I sometimes I agree with them, sometimes I disagree with them, but I always end up feeling more knowledgeable having read them Um, on the whole in the commentary i've i've engaged with articles um essays monographs and relatively little with the commentaries um dick france has a wonderful expression in the introduction to his commentary on mark where he says this is by intention a commentary on mark not a commentary on the commentaries on mark and and i'm trying to write that sort of commentary you can get commentaries that are sort of telephone directory of opinions um that's not the kind of commentary i want to write i'm trying to write a commentary that gives you an interpretation of the text um which you can then engage with
0: Mm -hmm. oh that's wonderful yeah very helpful advice um, and you're currently supervising PhD students. Are you taking any more students right now for those who are listening who are aspiring to do I research? Don't,
1: I don't think so because I'm very, very near the end of my my working life. It's, it'll be my sell by date soon. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So um, I think I'm about to take my last one off. Okay. Um, very good. Yeah. So. Um, and I've I've promised my college that I'll see see the once I've got through to completion, which is about eight at the moment. Um it, yeah. so I've I've just had one finish. Um my student mm-hmm. Ben Marks finished last Friday, had his had his virus successfully. He's got yeah. some minor corrections to do. But he's he's done really interesting work on um the in- interaction of the divine and the human in mission in acts. Mm. Um and done very good work indeed.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Yeah, I, I saw that uh, you had posted that he had on, on social media that he had finished. And that, that's, that's, yeah. that's so wonderful. That's great. Yeah. Um, okay, well, very good. So uh, you have a website, stevewalton.info. Is that right? That's, I do. I do. Okay. It's called Axe and
2: More. Axe and More. Um, yeah because
1: yeah. there is more there is more to the world than Acts, um, <laughs> even though Acts is the most important book um <laughs> there's there's other stuff around that's that's worth talking about so i i, I put all sorts of things up there I, I i've made some of my essays available particularly the one about surveying the different views of the roman empire mm. in the cats um but i i put slides up when i do lectures and talks and 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 sermons so so those are there too um so do visit tell me what you'd like to see
0: yeah absolutely i just i do want to encourage everybody to visit it because he you know steve does post um his slides and stuff when he when he gives talks and lectures and whatnot It's it's a great um place to find some resources on acts and more so well steve thank you so very much for joining us on the show today i really appreciate it you're welcome that's the end of today's episode and thanks again for listening to the bible unmuted if you like this podcast consider rating it on your podcast platform subscribing to it and sharing with your friends you can also support the podcast by becoming a patreon member go to patreon.com slash the bible unmuted or simply find the link to the patreon page in the description for this episode thanks again for listening until next time friends